3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am with me, M And Katia, good morning. Good morning, everyone. It is the 7th of February today. It is. How exciting that we're in February. I feel like last week, oh yeah, last week was the last day of January. Yeah, I know. And it's sort of, now we're already into the first week of Feb. So it's... That's pretty wild. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I feel like we just need a moment to wake up properly and yeah. join you all. Yes. So we will be back very, very shortly. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonisation, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune into Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am starting the 8th of January. 855 AM or via 3cr.org.au and check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. Just then we were listening to Baker Boy's new track, Cool As Hell, which is so great. Yeah, it's really When it's you told cool me it would come hell. out, I got so excited. I know. And we are big Baker Boy fans. We are. In this studio. And I'm pretty stoked because I've also got some other really great new tracks um, to play for you all this morning oh, later on in the show. Yeah. But before that, first up, we're going to be chatting with um, Jenny Smith, who's the CEO of Council to Homeless Persons, about, about actually about a whole range of things, but both around um, the importance of homelessness being considered in the Royal Commission to Mental Health that's being established in Victoria at the moment, um, also the way that um, homelessness services are seeing increasing numbers of folks with wages who are employed, full-time employed, part-time 
unemployed, um, you know, needing needing support mm-hmm. from um, homelessness and housing services. And also um, we're going to chat a bit about the punitive new welfare compliance regime as well. So stay tuned. We'll be chatting with Jenny in just a couple of minutes. Um, later on in the show, we're going to talk with Juliana Kretzenbacher, um, who is the Vice President of Liberty Victoria, about the spent convictions scheme, um, because the leader of the Reason Party, Fiona Patton, um, introduced uh, pro- or proposed a spent convictions scheme bill Yesterday, I think. Yeah, I think two days. Two ago, days ago now. Yep. Yep. Um, which would bring Victoria in line with all the other states and territories around mm-hmm. Australia. Um, so we'll be chatting with her about the importance of a scheme like that. That will be at 7.30. And then towards the end of the show, at 10 past 8, we'll be chatting with Renee Woods, who's a Nari Nari man and chairperson of the Murray Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations, um, about the report that was released, I think, last Thursday, um, which was the Royal Commission, uh, the South Australian Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission, which recommended a complete overhaul of the current scheme, but particularly we're going to be talking on, um, focusing on First Nations water rights and the importance of overturning Aquinellius. So stay tuned for that later on in the show. But right now we might just go to a few short announcements and then we'll be back with an interview with Jenny soon. My name is Ruby Susan Mouth. My pronouns are they. You're listening and to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binde with Stella, Rosie, and Claudia on. Hello, I'm Liz Wright. Welcome to Are You Looking at Me and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Corbenti, who are some of the elders. Did you miss our 12 hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical Disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime. love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian made and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between Queer 
Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1800 542 847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's the 7th of January and it's 11 past 7 at the moment. And right now we're going to jump into a chat with Jenny Smith, who's the CEO of Council to Homeless Persons, Victoria's peak body for homelessness. Council for Homeless Persons aims to elevate understanding of the causes of homelessness and solutions and advocate for better state and federal policies around housing and homelessness. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Emma, and good morning, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I was wondering if we could start by having a bit of a chat about the Royal Commission into Mental Health, which is currently being established in Victoria. How important is it that homelessness is included in the scope of that inquiry? Well, it's wonderful that the state government has committed to having a Royal Commission into Mental Health, and it's been decades since we've had a really good look at our mental health system. Um, And so it is really important that we kind of recognise that the suite of mental health services we have today, you know, has grown from, you know, the old style institutions that we used to have that used to unnecessarily lock up quite a lot of people. And uh, it's very clear that uh, nearly everybody with a mental illness can live um, constructively and safely in the community, uh, but housing that people can afford is a very key ingredient in that recipe and that's what we've really lost sight of uh, in the last 30 or 40 years that that's one of the pieces that we failed to put in place when we um, moved to having community mental health care as being our uh, major way of going forward. So it's really important that the Royal Commission uh, not only looks at that and, and understands how that situation, the current situation has crept up on us, but also looks at the affordable housing and support components of contemporary mental health care. And it certainly wasn't explicitly included in the FOCI that went out as being um, likely to inform the terms of reference. It's terrific that the government uh, is having a consultation in terms of reference and um, I'm uh, hoping that uh, by the time the terms of reference are formed that uh, the housing and support needs of um, people uh, living with a mental illness will be part of it. Absolutely, because to me it seems totally ridiculous that a massive, you know, a massive inquiry focusing on mental health could not take into account the way that you know, how, how on earth can folks recover from any mental health crises or any mental health issues without stable and safe homes? But what I was wondering if you could speak a bit about now is, I guess, the way that, that flows in two directions, the link between mental health issues and housing and homelessness. You know, both mental health issues can be a key reason that um, people present to homelessness services, but also, of course, mental health issues can be a, a consequence um, of experiencing homelessness or housing distress. Could you speak to that a bit, please? Yes, I think um, people who've experienced homelessness certainly make it pretty clear to us. And there is a bit of research that you know shows us that if you didn't have anxiety and depression um, before you went into uh, become being homeless, then you certainly will have after experiencing it for uh, not a very long period of time. 
Uh, the thing about living uh, with a serious mental illness is that it can, in many cases, in, in affect your capacity to be able to study and work and um, do the sort of job that you might have been able to do before you had the mental illness. It's not the case for everybody, but it probably is for um, the majority of people. And what that means is that you are much more likely to end up working part-time um, in, a, in a type of role that uh, doesn't exacerbate your mental illness or just not able to get uh, a job that pays very much at all. And so that means you're more likely to be poor. <clears throat> and excuse me, and being poor in our community these days with the price of housing having been uh, let go the way it has been um, just means you're very likely to be at risk of homelessness or even uh, experiencing homelessness. I think uh, having a, uh, an ongoing mental health condition makes you increasingly vulnerable uh, to not being able to afford a home and also not being able to manage some of those sometimes if you're unwell, uh, some of those negotiations with neighbours and landlords, even presenting well to a real estate agent and being able to compete uh, in our ridiculously competitive um, private rental market. Mm. And I did want to ask you on that note, um, why are we seeing increasing numbers of workers who are seeking homelessness assistance? Um, yeah, because I, I think I believe that, is it correct that in Victoria, those numbers seem to be almost skyrocketing um, and it really challenges some of the stereotypes, I think, that the media and the other folks have around um, have around homelessness in terms of who's actually accessing homelessness services when we're seeing so many folks with part-time and even full-time employment um, seeking support from, from homelessness services around the state. Yeah, our services have long seen uh, people in part-time or casual uh, insecure employment, which we're seeing a lot more of, of course, in our community. I think we're only just coming to grips with the fact that it's not as great an idea as people might have thought um, to have this sort of uh, flexible work as it's sometimes called. And we've always seen people with complexity in their lives um, coming to our services, but increasingly people in that sort of insecure part-time employment. But what we've seen in the last few years is a 31% increase in people who are employed full-time coming to our services. So... Last year we had almost 3,000 people who were employed full-time coming to our services um, at risk of homelessness, having fallen into homelessness um, because they are not able to afford the rent. Mm. And is that something that's being mirrored around the country or is that um, specific to Victoria? No, it's not um, specific to Victoria. Um, it's pretty much right around the country. Um, it's uh, growing fastest in New South Wales, um, but they were a little bit behind us um, in in their figures initially. Uh, but it's happening in every uh, state and territory, except for the ACT and Tassie, where it hasn't really moved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Tassie... The ACT in Queensland, it hasn't moved so fast, but in all the other uh, states and territories, it's um, moving upwards rapidly. Mm. Yeah, and that would seem to me 
to be such a strong indicator of the way in which housing costs and living costs are far outstripping um, any form of wage growth and how you know, any sort of um, experience, like, for example, family violence or, or illness or um, can, you know, just tip folks over that edge. And on which note, I just want to um, go back to talking around mental health for a moment. Yeah. I wanted to ask around um, the availability of post-release support um, for people who are discharged from acute mental health care, as well as, you know, for example, prisons as well. In Victoria, are, are there many um, are there many supports in place for people to go once they've experienced a mental health crisis and then they're discharged from that that yeah from from those places? Um, what happens then? Well, I think we have an opportunity in our community to look more closely at where people go when they leave a psychiatric inpatient unit to look more closely at where they go when they leave an emergency department or medical bed in a hospital and look more closely at where they go when they are released from prison. And there are <clears throat> some services in all of those places um, trying very hard to make sure that people are honed when they leave um, those facilities, but it's, they're not enough and it's not systematic enough and even where there are workers trying to do that, they really run into a housing market problem fairly quickly and really have to work very hard and creatively to sort of wreak miracles of finding people accommodation. Because, you know, if, if, if you've been released from prison, and prison's a really tricky one because most prisoners don't necessarily know when they're going to be released, when they might get mm-hmm. parole or whatever, so it's hard to line up housing. But... You know, if you're presenting to a real estate agent and you've just got out of prison, you're not going to get the property. Um, and also, if you're still quite unwell um, from coming out of a, a psychiatric inpatient service and still recovering, you're also, if you've lost your housing during the um, events that have led up to that, you're also not going to compete very well. So it is terribly important that we recognise as a community that government's got to come to the party with that that we've really got to subsidise housing um, for the most disadvantaged in our community who just can't compete in the private sector. And we look at, in Victoria, we've got, you know, 39,000 households um, waiting for social housing and 19,000 of those are, you know, of the highest priority. Um, We've got to do better. And that's why we're asking um, the state government, which has been uh, very active, particularly uh, in relation to... uh, the Family Violence Royal Commission and putting housing and support in place uh, for women and children escaping family violence and also doing some um, fantastic innovative work in relation to rough sleeping but wanting them to uh, up their commitment to a 1,000 additional social housing properties over a number of years to 3,000 a year for the next decade so we can you know, try and wipe out that priority waiting list on the um, social housing waiting list. Mm. Yes, and that's such an absolutely vital call at the state level that um, CHP and others um, are making. And yeah, just... I mean, it's hard for the state government without the federal government showing leadership and partnering and matching everything um, and really just talking about the investments that have been there mm. for a decade. Uh, it, it is hard for them, but they've, you know, they, we really need them to just step up in Victoria um, through uh, inaction from governments over the last several decades, uh, all sorts of government, 
is in the worst situation in the country in terms of percentage of social housing that we have. Mm. And just looking federally um, before we wrap up, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the new welfare compliance regime and how it is taking an incredibly punitive approach towards people experiencing or at risk of homelessness. Well, I I do become concerned when I see um, governments, you know, playing the person and and trying to, I think, distract everybody from the issue, and actually, you know, focusing effort on uh, vulnerable people. Um, you know, not making it to their meeting with their employment counsellor but, you know, unable to contact them because they're very difficult to contact or, um, you know, missing a job interview but not being able to um, explain the circumstances and have that taken into account um, is just crazy. And so to have a round and round of uh, vulnerable people uh, attracting demerit points losing um, payments of their um, centrally payment and then, of course, inevitably having their housing at risk because uh, that payment is so low you can't afford to lose a cent of it um, to be able to survive. Uh, it's just stupid and, um, you know, we understand that, you know, there's already been... The data shows that um, 20,000 people um, have... who you know, at risk of homelessness or, or have been homeless um, have been put in that situation. So that just adds to the pressure of, um, you know, demand of people going round and round for our services and also um, for housing at that uh, low end of the market, at that cheaper end of the market. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, it absolutely is, and it's absolutely unacceptable as well. Um, but we do have to wrap up now. So, Jenny, I was wondering, could you please tell us, how can we find more about um, the Council to Homeless Persons and the important work that you do? Oh, that's lovely of you. But, you know, we've got a what we think is a pretty good website, and so um, if you just go to Council to Homeless Persons or CHP, um, you can find out all about us. But what I'd really encourage uh, people to do is, Get active in this space and sign up to our national Everybody's Home campaign where you can uh, contribute to uh, policy in relation to housing and let all our politicians know that it doesn't matter um, who they are and who they um, and who people want to vote for, but every, you know we need all of our parties to have policies in this space. And at the moment, we don't have any national policy about affordable housing or about um, support. Yeah, Everybody's home. Wonderful and I do encourage listeners to jump online and check that out. Thank you so much Jenny for joining us this morning. I hope you have Thank a wonderful you, day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So it's hip hop, blues, reggae, jazz, opera, roots, curry or world music you're into. 3CR's music menu is serving it up to you. You're with Music Sans Frontier, music from around Australia and around the world. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to another edition of Great Voices. You're listening to Hits Sister Hop on 3CR 855 AM. Music matters on 3CR 12 noon every Friday. Keep these diverse tunes on the air by subscribing to 3CR. Call 94198377.
You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Just then we heard a new track from Birds featuring Echo Vandal called Place of Dreams. Bird released their most recent um, EP at the Gasso last Friday. And this track is, it's so excellent. Check it out. It's a really great video clip too. Like do jump online and have a look. It was called Place of Dreams. And right now, so we're going to be chatting about um, the proposed spent convictions bill, which the Reason Party leader, Fiona Patton, MP, introduced two days ago, I believe, um, which, if passed, would bring Victoria in line with every other state and territory around Australia. So this morning, we're very lucky to be joined by Julia, Julia Kretzenbarker, who is the Vice President of Liberty Victoria, to discuss the proposed spent conviction scheme. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, so, Julie, just to jump straight in, I was wondering, could you tell us a bit about um, what the proposed spent conviction scheme would involve? Sure. So, uh, Victoria, as you said, is the only jurisdiction which doesn't have a spent conviction scheme. So, Queensland, in fact, was the first uh, jurisdiction to introduce it back in 1989. And there have been a lot of pushes um, from the Law Institute, from Wardungan, uh, from the Australian Human Rights Institute to introduce a scheme in Victoria. The, the ba- basic premise of the scheme is the idea that we want to encourage people to rehabilitate and that if they have a minor conviction, or a conviction can also just be a finding of guilt, so even if they've been found guilty but no conviction has been recorded um, because it was, the offence was minor, that after a certain period of time passes where they have not reoffended that conviction no longer shows up on their criminal record. So for an adult who um, the automatic... The bill that um, Fiona Patton's Reason Party has introduced, in respect of a minor conviction for a summary offence, um, it would be a period of time of five years and the, auto, the conviction will be automatically spent if the punishment they received was less than six months imprisonment. So if five years after they are found guilty of that offence and that punishment was less than six months and they haven't reoffended, that would then no longer show up on a criminal check. For indictable offences, um, it would be the same automatically in respect of at less than six months, but it would be a 10-year waiting period, so 10 years of no reoffending and then that conviction would be spent. If a person was a child when they committed an offence, then that period, whether it's a summary or an indictable offence, would be three years. So you might have someone who <clears throat> had a bit of a bad run when they were 14 or 15 and then have done nothing and they're at uni um, you know, applying for jobs. Um, and then if that three-year period has passed with no other issues, that wouldn't show up on a criminal record check. Uh, Julia, this is Katya here. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the current scheme. So under the current scheme, it's up to police um, and their discretion as to which um, offences are released when a person seeks a criminal record check. Can you talk a little bit about the current scheme and some of the problems that arise when police have discretion over people's past convictions or people's convictions? Yeah, sure. So currently there's a Victoria Police policy um, which... The, the basic premise is um, that 
uh, they won't include certain matters on a criminal record check if they deem it not relevant and if a certain period of time has passed. So um, the Victoria Police policy is um, it, it's actually a, a, a longer sentence of imprisonment as punishment. It's 30 months, um, but they might not release information um, if you have not reoffended. I think it's also within 10 years. The issue with that, of course, is that it's a policy, it's not binding uh, on Victoria Police necessarily, and there is a decision made by someone somewhere when they receive the application for a criminal record check that has to make a judgment about whether they should include an old conviction or not. And there's no transparency about that process. So if you're applying for a job and you had perhaps a minor, you know, it might have had a minor charge for possessing cannabis when you were 18, and then 10 or 12 years later you're applying for a job, you don't know if that's going to show up on the criminal record check. So there might be circumstances where people are too afraid to apply for the criminal record check or to even apply for a job that requires it because that conviction might show up, even though it has nothing to do with you as a person 10 years later um, and you haven't reoffended really in that time. So the real issue is that the decisions made by someone, it's not reviewable um, and uh, you don't know on what basis they make a decision. They get to decide if it's relevant or not to include uh, that conviction on your criminal record check. And with the people that are affected by the current scheme, so, I mean, I guess I have two questions here. So the first question is, I guess, how many people are actually applying for these um, criminal record checks? Um, because I do know figures have increased over the years in terms of employment. And who are, And the second part of the question is, and who are the groups that are most affected by it? Yeah, so um, I, I couldn't tell you exactly how many people are applying, um, but we, in our report, in the report that the Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project prepared a couple of years ago on this issue, um, the Victoria Police Annual Report showed that in the years of 2015-2016, Victoria Police conducted 691,029 criminal history checks and that's compared to about 3,500 checks in 1992-93. So there's been a huge increase in that. Um, Wudangan is an organisation that has done a lot of research and lobbying on how the fact that Victoria lacks a spent conviction scheme has disproportionately affected Aboriginal people in Victoria. So it might be in terms of if, um, if a kinship care, for example, if, there, if there's been a minor conviction in the past, that might affect whether they're able to um, care for children that they're related for, of course, job applications as well. Um, we also found in our research that a lot of jobs, um, which lots of young people um, and um, teenagers might be applying for, like McDonald's, have now made a part of their uh, process, the criminal record check. So if we think about how many McDonald's are just in Victoria alone, how many people work for that, it can affect quite a huge number of people. And um, just returning to indictable offences, I think you mentioned them a bit earlier around having that 10-year um, time period. Because yes. I, I, I guess a lot of people in the community are always really worried about indictable offences and there's a yes. lot of fear around um, indictable offences. So in, what are some of the, I guess, benefits or risks of moving into a new scheme um, in terms of allaying some of those the community's fears around indictable offences? Sure. So indictable offences... 
can also include offences that are dealt with in the magistrate's court and can also be fine-only offences. So, for example, if you possess a small amount of cannabis, um, I'm just going back into my memory, but I believe if, if if you possess less than 50 grams of cannabis, then there's no evidence that you were supplying that to anyone if it was for personal use. So it could be half a gram or something, that is actually an indictable offence. Um, so whether something is indictable or summary is determined by the Criminal Procedure Act and usually the the, the rule is an offence with less than two years imprisonment is considered a summary offence. But you do have some offences that have that less than two years imprisonment as a maximum penalty that are still indictable offences. So indictable offences, although they sound more serious and they can be more serious because they um, can be dealt with by the Supreme Court and the County Court still encompasses a whole range of offences, including offences that are at the lower end of the scale, like possessing cannabis. Um, And also, there's a whole bunch of indictable offences which are dealt with in the magistrate's court every day and all the time, and the, the punishment that people get is quite low. So a shop steal, for example, stealing... Um, say someone you know is, has had a few drinks and goes into a bottle shop and does something stupid and takes a bottle of wine off the shelf and runs out, that is an indictable offence. So it's not the most serious offence on the, the scale of offences that we know exists, but um, is that law considered an indictable offence? So someone would not have to reoffend for 10 years for that shop steal or possessing cannabis not to appear on their record anymore. So that's the, the, the one thing, is that indictable offences, um, it, it's a huge range of offences. It doesn't only encompass the most serious offences. The second point is, in respect of the bill that's been introduced, um, there's a difference between offences where the conviction is automatically sent and offences where um, a person can apply to ask a court to have their conviction sent. So the automatic uh, uh, a process is, as I've said, if the punishment, it, it really comes more down to the punishment rather than what kind of offence, but it's where the punishment is less than six months imprisonment, so where someone gets a fine, gets a CCO, gets a good behaviour bond, things like that. If the punishment that someone receives uh, is more than six months, um, but it might have been 15, 20 years since that offence, then a person can actually apply to a court um, and ask the court whether their conviction can be spent. And then the legislation sets out a whole number of factors um, for the court to consider if it's appropriate for that conviction to be spent. So the legislation is quite limited in which offences it um, automatically spends. And then in terms of what would we consider more serious offences where the punishment is higher, um, there is that overview by court to consider whether a conviction should be spent. Now looking at, um, I guess, lobbying around this issue, you mentioned that in Queensland it's, you know, they've had a spent conviction scheme since 89 um, and this would really bring us into line with other states. What is, why has it taken, I guess, Victoria to so long to get here and what are some of the lobbying that's already been done? And you mentioned the um, Wardungan um, project as well, if you could go yes. into that. Yeah, um, so it's, there's been calls for this kind of reform um, all over Australia for the last 30 years. 
Um, so Queensland, as I said, was the first jurisdiction, and in fact it was the Joby Aker-Peterson government who introduced that legislation. Um, and since then, um, I just have to double-check, so it was 86, that was Queensland, then it was um, 88, WA, 89, the Commonwealth, 91, New South Wales, Northern Territory, 92, 2000 in the ACT, 2003 in Tassie, and South Australia was 2009, and here we are in 2017, the, the Greens um, introduced a private member's bill, and now in 2019, we have um, Fiona Patton's Reason Party introducing um, a bill. So there's been movement all these years, and it, it, it's really... I can't answer the question why it has taken this long in Victoria. Um, it seems strange for it to be so inconsistent with the rest of Australia, in particular... Um, you might you have this difference that if you commit an offence in New South Wales, say on the border of New South Wales and Victoria, Albury Wodonga, if you're in Albury and you commit a shop theft and don't do anything else for ten years, that won't show up. But if you then move to Victoria and apply for a record check, that will show up, even though you committed the offence in New South Wales, and it would be spent under the New South Wales um, legislation. So I, I, I can't answer the question why it has taken this long. I wish I had that answer. Labor did promise before the election in 2014 that they would look into the viability of the scheme, um, but I haven't seen anything um, since that where there's been any big moves towards it. But yeah, as you said, there's been um, there's been great has been great advocacy by a number of um, of organisations. So. Um, there have been, there's been early in the 2000s, COAG looked into the issue and there was a discussion paper. A model, uh, spent convictions bill, um, was drafted and lots of bodies made submissions on that. So the Australian Human Rights Commission, Law Association, Human Rights Law Centre, uh, community legal centres, universities, things like that. Um, Fitzroy Legal Service and Job Watch in 2005. Uh, released a report as well recommending um, that people shouldn't have to disclose certain convictions. There was a review in Victoria of the Equal Opportunity Act, excuse me, Equal Opportunity Act um, that the Act be amended so that an irrelevant criminal record is protected and a protected attribute. The Law Institute of Victoria published a submission in 2015 and Woodungan in 2016 launched the Criminal Record Discrimination Project um, highlighting how discrimination on the basis of a criminal record disproportionately affects Aboriginal people. Wardungan has done amazing work. They have managed um, to uh, convince the government to introduce legislation for convictions um, to be spent for Aboriginal people who were convicted of being a neglected child. Um, I think that was about two years ago yeah. or possibly last year. So they've done amazing advocacy and work on, on, on this and they have achieved a lot um, and the fight is still continuing with all these organisations as well. But why we're so far behind, I wish I knew the answer mm. to that. Um, and I guess just one last question and maybe a little bit of a prediction as well. Like in terms of our current government and there's you know, a very big focus on law and order, we've got a bill in parliament at the moment around changing legislation for police powers around DNA. Mm. Um, how do you think this bill, I mean I know it's, I'm asking you to predict the future, but how do you think this bill might progress through parliament? Well, I'm really hopeful that we would get broad support because on, on one hand, it's uncontroversial. It's well-trodden ground and you've had this legislation in place in other jurisdictions um, and really Victoria is catching up. 
So we're not the first and um, we're, we're not being guinea pigs in any sort of way. Um, we're really just trying to give Victorians the same rights as the rest of Australia. So on the one hand, I really hope that it's um, a no-brainer for, for, for everyone to support it. Um, I understand that there are, as you said, there's a lot of law and order issues. But this, the way that we... Um, why you know we think this is so important is that part of law and order um, and part of preventing reoffending is rehabilitation. And saying to people, if you don't get in trouble again for this long, I mean, ten years is a long time. <laughs> if you don't get in trouble again for ten years, that's a, that's it. It's not going to be any record again for minor offences. So I hope that that will be seen in a really reasonable way because it only automatically applies to you know, minor offences and it's a long waiting period. And if someone hasn't reasoned in 10 years, we should celebrate that. Mm. We should say that is what we want. That one of the biggest ways to protect our community is to encourage rehabilitation and we think that this bill would do that. Yeah, fantastic. Um, thank you for coming on air with us today. If people wanted to find out more, where could they head... So um, our uh, report is called um, A Legislated Spent Conviction Scheme for Victoria. It was released in 2017 and that's on the Liberty Victoria website. Um, but if people just Google Rights Advocacy Project and Spent Convictions, um, they'll find that report. And that goes through a lot of the history and our recommendations and um, and why we think this scheme is really important. The bill as well, of course, is online and everyone can have a look at it. So the bill um, is on the Parliament website and Parliament uh, tweeted it out yesterday too. So have a look at the bill um, as well um, for that information. Thank you. We've been speaking with Julia Kretzenbacher, Vice President of Liberty Victoria. Thank you for coming on air with us today, Julia. Thanks very much. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know, it's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of where we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah. Because of where we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and. 
tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. I hope the young ones come off the truck there the other day and they called me Auntie Marlene so it helped me recognise and realise and like pull myself up like yeah. They starting to look up to me so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an ancestor you know way back when. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 10 to 8 at the moment. Just before, we were chatting with Julia Kretzenbacher about the importance of a spent conviction scheme here in Victoria. And right now we're going to jump into a new track, Night Lounge 3000 by Lady Lash. You're tuned in to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 7 to 8 at the moment, and just then we're listening to a new track from Lady Lash, Night Lounge 3000. It's so beautiful. I love it. (laughs) Um, So now we're going to jump into some headlines of things that are going on at the moment around Australia. Um, So first up, the government's controversial automated Centrelink debt recovery system, known as RoboDebt, is set to face a legal challenge in the federal court. So Victoria Legal Aid filed papers in the federal court on Tuesday of this week, challenging Centrelink's means of assessing if a person was in debt, um, which they were doing via an algorithm which averaged a person's yearly income from the tax office and automatically issuing a debt notice if it didn't match fortnightly income reporting to Centrelink. In what lawyers describe as a landmark case, Victoria Legal Aid will seek to challenge the way that Centrelink evaluates whether a person owes a welfare debt um, and it will argue that these crude calculations um, that the tax office has been using are insufficient to assess a person's earnings and therefore unlawful. So stay tuned on that one. Um, on and I guess on a related note as well, So there was a review that I think was released this week by the federal government into their very own um, CDP, Community Development Program, um, which is a review of the remote Aboriginal Work for the Dole program, which found that 36% of participants say that their communities are worse off under the scheme. There are about 35,000 community development participants around Australia, and 83% are Indigenous. As a condition of income support, remote area participants must engage in up to 25 hours of work for the dole five days a week. And it's important to remember, you know, that this is without any sort of benefits or protections or sick leave or anything like that. And so this is the government's own review, which, you know, we would think is already very limited in terms of its accountability and transparency. But, you know, it found that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander CDP participants were three times more likely to be penalised for non-attendance and were penalised more often than non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander participants, which just goes to show the um, blatant systemic racism that is at the foundations of a system like this. Um, Looking internationally for a moment, so um, we've spoken before on the show about um, Hakim Al-Arabi who's been detained in Thailand over the past few months 
and El Arabi could remain in jail in Thailand um, until August while the court decides on an extradition request from Bahrain. So the 25-year-old refugee um, who has permanent residency here in Australia was arrested on arrival in Bangkok for a holiday some months ago on the basis of an Interpol red notice, which was later lifted. He's currently fighting the extradition um, as he says that he faces torture in Bahrain if he returns. And the Greens and Australia's peak union body, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, have recently called for a formal parliamentary inquiry into the actions of the Australia Federal Police and the role of Australian authorities um, which in contributing to the arrest of El Arabi in Thailand. So the ACTU President Michelle O'Neill has come out and said, quote, it's deeply disturbing that our own authorities would help a country to extradite an Australian resident when they're accused of torturing that person. We are calling for a parliamentary inquiry into the circumstances around his detention and the role Australian authorities played in this awful situation. I'd really encourage everyone to um, check out RISE, um, the refugee, um, the incredible group that's led by refugees, asylum seekers and ex-detainees who've been doing amazing work campaigning for the release of Hakim Al-Arabi. So I know you can also look on um, hashtag Save Hakim on Twitter as well. And then again, to continue with the note of... <laughs> all the stuff that um, <laughs> the Australian Border Force and Australian authorities um, are doing and the importance of, I guess, trying to hold them to account no matter how much they try and avoid any sort of transparency. Um, I don't know if you would have seen, but also Four Corners did a report on Monday this week around... Um, uh, women from Saudi Arabia who uh, have been seeking asylum in Australia. And so witnesses and activists have accused Australian Border Force officers of targeting Saudi Arabian women whom they suspect will apply for asylum and blocking them from entering the country when they arrive at Australian airports. Four Corners has evidence of at least two young Saudi women who arrived at Sydney Airport in the past two years but were turned back after making their asylum claims clear to Australian officials. Four Corners has also been told that Saudi women who arrive alone at Australian airports are being questioned as to why they are travelling without a male guardian. At least 80 Saudi women have sought asylum in Australia in recent years. So again, you know, this just you know points to the importance of looking at the way that yeah, you know, that racism is embedded, is implicated, is enacted at every single level um, of these Australian systems and the way they target. Um, you know, women, men, kids, folks of all genders um, who are experiencing, you know, oppression and disadvantage in so many ways. And so the last thing that I want to share with you this morning is um, I hope everyone was aware that on Monday it was the anniversary of the Kamaragunja walk-off. Um, so on the 4th of Feb, um, this year was actually the 80th anniversary of this incredibly significant event um, and there was a three-day celebration organised by the Yorta Yorta Nation Aboriginal Corporation um, and there, I think there was around a 1,000 folks that attended to celebrate the 80th anniversary of this you know, incredible act of resistance which took place you know, in, in uh, ongoing many, many, many years of resistance by Yorta Yorta and other nations um, in the area but in 1939, about 200 residents walked off the mission um, and crossed the Murray River, leaving New South Wales, um, and so coming to, you know, uh, Achuka, Obama, Shep, um, in Victoria. And, yeah, there was a really incredible few days of, of celebrations, of community coming together to recognise the, you know, just so how important this event was and how important it is that it continues to be remembered. 
that's all I've had for you this morning. Um, so we might just jump into some community announcements and we'll be back in just a tick. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Friday the 1st of March at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 9419 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong Of course a lot of the Aboriginals having been stolen were put into state care and also others The recognition of what our people have been through in the last 200 years the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day 223 years ago the white man landed on our shores Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au Subscribe now You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast It's two minutes past eight on the 7th of February and right now I have a song that is dedicated to Katia because P&E has just released a new track called Change um, which is a collaboration with Crown I hope you enjoy Thanks, Sam. <laughs> it's P.E. I've been asleep too long, you know I gotta wake up. All these illusions in my head, I gotta break up. And everybody wanna say I ain't no fighter. But I'ma show them every day that I'm a you're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Just then we heard Hold Up from P Unique. And right now we're going to jump into an interview um, with Renee Woods, who is chairperson of the Murray Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations, to discuss the report that was released last Thursday, the 31st of January, the, uh, the report of the South Australian Murray Darling Basin Royal Commission and the need for stronger legal recognition of First Nations water rights. Good morning, Renee. Hold on, everyone, I've just lost Renee. We'll be back in just a tick when we can get him back. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf, or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists, and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonisation, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, 
sexuality and gender, and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune in to Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am, starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au. And check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Right now we're joined by Renee Woods, Chairperson of the Murray Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations. Good morning, Renee. Hey, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, so I was wondering if we could start by jumping into what were some of the key take-home messages of the South Australian Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission report that came out last Thursday? Uh, some of the real recommendations out of the the SA Royal Commission report, um, the stronger re- recognition of First Nations people involvement in, in the water water sector, a key decision-making um, management areas uh, from, the, from the very top right down to those on-ground deliveries and also better better um, recognition of our cultural values uh, within, the, within the landscape and then within our country areas of our nation groups. Um, the, the report also recognised the the mis-maladministration of the of the MDBA and and some other people and and it, it was clear that politics has played a a big role in in where we are now in the basin plan and what we're seeing unfold um, in some of the river systems that the plan had all good intentions starting off um, but politics has come in and played a role and where um we are now where we are but the, the highlighted out of the SA Royal Commission is and things we need to work on together. Mm. And so, as you say, in that in the original basin plan and associated water reform, there was a real failure to recognise First Nations rights to protect, use, um, and manage, manage waters flowing through um, your countries. Mm. What have been some of the, I guess, consequences of the of that lack of um, of recognition of First Nations water rights? So. By, by us not being able to, to manage water as we've done for over 60,000 years across our, our country, in the last 230 odd years that um, we've had occupation here in in, um, in Australia and we've had water reform for a bit over 100 years now, um, we've, we've seen rivers die. Um, as example, the, uh, the, the Barker River or the Darling River, as it's known. Um, we're also seeing uh, mass mass fish kills. We manage those river systems in the past um, allowing water to flow through country, uh, building structures and, and, and holding water in, in key wetlands on, on country. Uh, we've got traditional ecological knowledge in that space that um, we just hadn't been listened to in the past and now is a, is a prime time for governments, both states and federal, based and state governments, to allow First Nations people to to be at that, be at the key decision-making role and, and manage water across our, across our country. And it's shown by not, by us not being there. This is where we've ended up, um, with country dying and people unwell across the basin. Mm. 
Yeah, and I'm sure we've all been seeing in the news, you know, the images and the stories around the recent massive fish kills um, in New South Wales. And I just find it it's so ludicrous that so often when they're spoken about, you know, we'll see these like white politicians coming out and talking about, you know, maybe we can put some little aerators in the river or something like that. Um, and so often the conversation doesn't centre, um, you know, First Nations knowledge and sovereignty in terms of actually moving forward and addressing um the you know the current ecological crisis in a sense that is going on. That's right, and even even looking at the and and, and listening to the the Barkindji people, um, or the of the Darling River, they manage that system. Even when there was a, a minim, minimal flows coming down that Darling system, there were key waterholes that that maintained fish habitat over over sixty thousand years plus, and they managed that waterway to make sure that those key areas had water, it had a flow, it wasn't stagnant, and they allowed that water to go from the top end of the Darling through uh, to downstream nations. That's the type of management and knowledge that's out there, um, but we just don't have that recognition in that space at the moment, and we need to be, to be there. And could you explain for our listeners the concept of cultural flows? <clears throat> so cultural flows are water entitlements that are owned and managed by First Nations groups. Um, that are sufficient quality and quantity. Um, so the quality issue is, is crucial. Uh, we want good, good, healthy water coming across country, reconnecting our, our waterways um, and wetland areas off stream um, where a lot of our cultural values sit. Um, but also it's the management of that, that water as, as we've done in the past. And it's, it's, it's our cultural values that we're, we're trying to water um, and have benefits back to our nation groups um, with um, by being in control of that entitlement and, and, and having a say on where that water is. Culture flows is for the river, it's for the environment. It's to meet our cultural responsibilities that we've, that's been passed on to us. And over time, we need, to, we need to pass that cultural responsibility on to our next generation. If we don't, uh, we haven't done our job culturally. And without water in the rivers, our cultural values and our, our people are really struggling out there. Yeah, and I believe it's over 10 years ago now, isn't it, that the um, Murray-Lower-Darling River Indigenous Nations created the Achuka Declaration, which was that groundbreaking statement outlining First Nations rights um, in water management. Um, and so, you know, traditional owners and sovereign custodians have been calling for an end to aquanellius for some time. And I think li- listeners might be aware of, you know, the concept of terranellius, but could you explain this idea of aquanellius for us as well? Aqu- aquanellius, the water was taken... The water isn't owned by by anyone. It, it, it's its own living being and should be managed like that. It's got its own identity. Aquanellius is the water that's been taken away from from Mother Earth, our people, uh, and put into an entitlement system that has ruined our, our river system. The same as when they come over um, in the first fleet. They come over, they said that they own, they own everything, um, and now they, they've done that to the, to the water entitlement, hence the Aquinalius um, tag. And, I, and it's, it's really true. It's, we weren't at the table when they were handing out land and water licences back in back in the early 1900s in some states, uh, we're, still not a, we're still not key water holders in, in states. Um, we, need to, we need to change that. The Aboriginal water sector is the last piece of the water management puzzle, and until we fix, fix that and then have the other stakeholders 
outside the irrigators groups, the NGOs, all the rest of the basin states as well, change that and look seriously at the water at the Aboriginal water sector. We're going to go around in, in circles, and we're not going to have a basin to sustain. Mm, absolutely, um, and it points to the urgent need for you know for settler colonial governments, for white politicians, um, to stop thinking of water as a resource to be exploited. Um, and you know it reminds me of um, reading in the news last year around some of the new and innovative um, water laws. Uh, for example, in New Zealand, where the Wanganui River was given legal rights, um, and you know the way that I guess around the world, um, First Nations communities have you know have the solutions for yeah. for water preservation and management. That's right, and there's there's, there's examples around the world um, on on that type of legal entity for for rivers. Um, the Maori are are progressing that really well. The Yarra River. Um, Birang Ma Act um, is a, is a start. It's 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 looking at that and then managing that system as its own own identity. And I, I commend Victoria and the and the TOs down there and the, and everyone involved in pushing that in that space. But there's there's other rivers and other states that need to need to come along to the table and and have a look at that um, and what's best practice elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Australia is really good at selling water management as best practice, but I don't think at the moment it is best practice that we're selling. We can learn from others around the world, um, especially in the space of the, the identities and recognition of, of rivers um, as their own identity. And, yeah, we need to look at that seriously moving forward. Mm. And in terms of, um, you know, after this report was released last Thursday and moving forwards from here, on that note, is is a state-based approach to, you know, trying to achieve change likely to work, given that, you know, the I guess the idea of states is, a, you know, a colonial imposition and these, the rivers that are now known as the Murray and the Darling intersect so many different um, Aboriginal nations. How, yeah, how, how can states work together or work with... I don't. I don't exactly know what I'm asking, but you know yep. sort of what no, I mean. About I think. Yeah, yes. I think. I think as they can learn from from us as first people, that we manage country as a whole. We didn't break down sections. We didn't draw lines on on maps. Um, and I think that's what we need to. The basin plan had all intentions of of managing the basin collectively as a whole, but there's been too much you know, emphasis put on. That's my water resource plan area. I've got to do that as a basin state, or I'll just concentrate on that that water resource plan area within my within my state. There's no connectivity. We cannot first peoples cannot see any connectivity between the water resource plans from the southwestern corner of um, Queensland and how the states are talking right through to the, the Murray Mouth in in SA. They need to be collaborating and working together to make sure that connectivity is there moving forward and put aside each each state's politics and have a have a think about what's good for the good for the basin so we've got a basin in 50 years time that we we can all um, benefit from not just the select couple of stakeholders absolutely and as 
uh, you know, as um, governments shift into imp- trying to implement the the recommendations from from the commission, what is what is the Murray Law Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations calling for, and how can people um, support the work that you're doing? Well, we're we're um, we're hoping that the minister, federal water minister, starts to implement the, the deal sheet that was that came out from last last year's Northern Basin. Also, the SDL. Um, package and the deal sheet there with the, the money available for water purchases for First Nations people. We want to see that up and running. We want to see Cultural Flows um, tool out and running within our nation groups, not just in the basin but around Australia. Uh, we want to we want to see First Nations people on the authority in key decision making um, groups at the state and federal level. We want it, We just want to be in there and make sure that what would come out of the report and what what was intended under the basin plan is starting to be implemented. We've had waves of in and out of of work, but those with on ground outcomes we need to start seeing um, and have more involvement on the ground with our First Nation groups. Yeah, amazing. And just very quickly before we wrap up, how can listeners find out more? There's. Uh, there's plenty of activity on, on social media. Uh, Mildred's, Mildred's Facebook site is quite active there. Twitter, uh, the SA Royal Commission website is a really good um, start to look at some of the recommendations and the findings in that report. Uh, it is lengthy, but I, 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 I encourage people to, that don't understand the basin plan, plan to have a look at that document and also have a look at the MDBA's website. There is a number of, of documents on there, the basin plan, there and just see what what we're trying to do, um, and also what First Nations groups and have a have a discussion um, with First Nations people in your in your community around the water sector. Um, every discussion we're having around water is, is someone else is learning from from what we're trying to do. So it's communication. Uh, there's plenty of material out there. Uh, jump online and have a look. Thank you so much, Renee, for joining us this morning. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. We've been listening to Renee Woods, chairperson of the Murray Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations, about the Murray Darling Basin Royal Commission report that was released last Thursday, the importance of recognising Indigenous water rights and overturning Aquinellius. And that is pretty much all we have time for this morning. I know. So it's been a great show today. We've only got about a minute to wrap up, and I just want to actually say... To, for all of our listeners, a big thank you to M because M did an amazing job getting the show prepared this week and we were both having big weeks. And also happy birthday as well <laughs> for, um, for Monday. Thank you. Yes, it was my birthday on Monday. And yeah, it was very nice. Um, but um, stay tuned for Lost in Science up next and then tomorrow morning tune in same time for Friday breakfast. We'll be back next Thursday. Hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the week. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.